0: Hey True Crime Besties, welcome back to an all new episode of Serialously. Hey everybody, welcome back to an all-new episode of Seriously with me, Annie. Now, if you're watching the video version of this, you may notice that there's a little difference going on. You might be like, hey, Annie, things look different. What's happening? Well, let me break it down. So the lighting has obviously changed. We're doing it a little bit moodier, a little bit you know, just kind of like, I don't want to say spookier, but just really matching the content more. Because as most of you know, I changed the intro music several weeks back because I feel like it just fit the content more than what the upbeat, lighthearted music was before. And so then I got to thinking, I was like, you know what, the bright colors, the bright lights, that doesn't really feel like it fits the content either. And so I was like, I just need to like stay true and authentic to what I'm doing, what I'm here to talk with you guys about. So dimmed the lights down. It kind of looks like I'm in an insane asylum with all of these padded walls behind me, but I feel like it's better. So hopefully you guys agree with me. Now, the case we're talking about today, guys, boy, oh boy, it is a wild roller coaster and one of the crazier ones that we probably are going to talk about on this. It kind of actually reminds me a little bit Uh, of the case we talked about a few weeks ago with the millionaire heiress who attacked her mom with her boyfriend and all this, but let me just jump right in. Let me quit explaining and let's jump right in. We all know that the extent to which people are willing to go for revenge can really vary greatly depending on their individual circumstances, on their beliefs, maybe even their emotional state. We know that revenge is driven by this deep desire within for retribution, and sometimes it can lead individuals to engage in some extreme and really harmful actions. Some people may even be driven to seek revenge through legal means, while others may resort to illegal or unethical methods. It can perpetuate this cycle, a cycle of violence, of damage, and can damage relationships, causing long-lasting consequences. Ultimately, the decision to seek revenge is a personal one. Somebody decides this on their own, but it's influenced by a complex mix of emotions, values, circumstances, you name it. The betrayal you may have felt, whatever it is. So today's story is all about revenge, but revenge by a couple's 24-year-old daughter that took place back in 2010. Buckle up, guys, because the Jennifer Pan case is unlike anything you have ever heard
1: 53 year old Big pan was shot and killed during a home invasion on november 8th 2010 her husband han pan was
2: shot in the head but survived and if i wanted to i could have just left but i didn't i wanted to stay with them and take care of them
3: so, this wasn't some evil plot that you thought up to. Oh my god, no. No interaction, no belief, no, you didn't have anything to do with this thing at all, no. whatsoever. You don't engage in illegal activity?
2: No.
0: Today we are talking about the case of the Pan family, consisting of Bic Pan and Han Pam. Han is originally from Vietnam and spent his childhood there until he migrated to Canada in 1979 as a refugee. Bic, sharing a very similar background, was also born in Vietnam and arrived in Canada as a refugee as well. Now the couple eventually met, got married in Toronto, and established their home in Scarsborough, Canada. In 1986, their first daughter, Jennifer, was born, and that was followed by the birth of their second child, Felix, in 1989. The Pan family worked at an automotives parts manufacturer named Magna International. This company was located in Aurora, Ontario. Han served as a skilled tool and die maker, while Bick, working in the same factory as her husband, specialized in manufacturing car parts. As immigrants, they diligently labored to earn a living, seizing every opportunity that came their way and exerting themselves to the absolute fullest. Their utmost priority was to provide for their children. They wanted to provide opportunities that they themselves never had growing up. Consequently, hard work became their guiding principle in all of this. Additionally, they were very frugal and good at saving money. Over time, their hard work paid off too, allowing them to save enough money to buy a beautiful home. In 2004, their long-held dream of owning a home for their family came true. They were thrilled to settle down in Markham, which is a very nice residential area. With their now-improved financial stability, they were even able to afford fancy cars like a Lexus and a Mercedes. Their lives became a true reflection of the dream that they had always hoped for and always wanted to afford for their family. They now felt settled and content in their wonderful neighborhood, eagerly anticipating their future. The Pan family was flourishing in every aspect of their lives. However, it is crucial to understand that the pans were exceptionally strict parents with their two children, often even being referred to as tiger parents. They adhered to a parenting style commonly seen in Asian cultures, which is characterized by rigorous rules, limited flexibility, and significant parental control. Growing up in such a household with extremely high expectations and high values could be incredibly challenging and even burdensome to a few. The pressure to meet their parents' lofty standards was immense, adding to the already demanding atmosphere in their home. Now, Jennifer and Felix were regarded as exceptionally well-behaved children. Felix, in particular, pursued a path in mechanical engineering at a highly esteemed university this choice was of course influenced by han's desire for felix to study engineering specifically to be involved in the family's automotive endeavors han envisioned felix not just working on cars but also having the ability to design them one day and jennifer was equally remarkable in her academic pursuits and had a bustling extracurricular life she embarked on her musical journey early on starting piano lessons at the young age of four Additionally, she showcased her talent by playing the flute in the school band. Beyond music, Jennifer found great passion in figure skating, getting extensive time and effort to become an Olympic athlete. Now, the competitive world of figure skating brought in an entirely new set of stressors. More than just the academic pressure and the strict rules that were happening in the household, it brought on a whole nother set of stress. However, an unfortunate incident occurred when Jennifer suffered a severe ligament injury in her knee, forcing her to make the difficult decision to quit figure skating altogether. This injury shattered her dreams of becoming an Olympic athlete one day. But she still had her academics going for her, right? Because Jennifer was believed to be an exceptional academic student. However, she had been keeping some secrets from her parents and her school performance was one of them. Despite her parents' high expectations for her grades, Jennifer typically achieved an average in the 70s range, falling short of straight A's, which normally wouldn't bother too many people or too many parents, it's passing. But remember, Han and Bick were very, very strict, and this was unacceptable to them. But Jennifer's passion and her success lied in music. She excelled and found great joy in her musical pursuits, but her parents insisted on her achieving the perfect grades. She felt trapped with no other option but to meet their demanding academic standards. So Jennifer resorted to a drastic measure. She began forging her report cards, fabricating her grades to deceive her parents into believing that she actually was achieving straight A's, where in reality, she was just an average student. And this was just the beginning of what would soon spiral out of control. During the period in which the report cards were being faked, Jennifer was enrolled at Mary Ward Catholic School, but her academic performance and behavior began to falter even more, prompting her to switch to a different school. Her parents, who upheld these strict standards and values, were well aware of the school transition, and they closely supervised her daily routine. They diligently picked her up from school and closely monitored her participation in any extracurricular activities. Her parents had an intense aversion to boys as well. Jennifer's parents strictly forbid her from having any friendships with boys or any romantic relationships. This also meant that she was forbidden from attending school dances, a restriction that would naturally frustrate any teenager who was trying to fit in, make friends, go to prom, go to winter formal, and she wasn't able to do any of that. Instead, it was school, home, flute, piano, that's it, that's all, get good grades, no friends, no boys, no nothing, and to many teenagers would think no fun. Feeling confined and constrained, Jennifer began to view her family situation as a form of imprisonment. So to cope with the overwhelming pressure, she resorted to fabricating many aspects of her life, not just the report cards. She was a liar, and her lies created a ton of pressure in her life to be able to keep up with all of them. And despite her parents strictly saying absolutely no dating, Jennifer crossed paths with a boy named Daniel Wong during the 11th grade. Daniel was known for his fun and outgoing nature. He was a year ahead of her in school as well. He played the trumpet in the band and they formed a connection and really began to bond. In 2003, an exciting opportunity arose for Jennifer and Daniel as they embarked on a school field trip together to Europe. Their journey included a performance at a very prestigious concert hall. However, smokers who were smoking in the area triggered Jennifer's asthma, causing her to panic and to experience severe distress. But during this moment, Daniel was able to really calm down Jennifer and help ground her, help calm her down from the situation. Because of this, Jennifer felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude and viewed him as a true lifesaver. This incident served as a catalyst, deepening her feelings for Daniel and the bond that they shared. As the summer unfolded, they began dating, keeping their relationship completely hidden from Jennifer's overly strict parents. Jennifer had received early admission to Ryerson University. However, that admission was revoked when it was discovered that she had failed one of her calculus classes during her senior year. However, instead of being honest about her setback, she chose to conceal the truth again from everyone, including her parents. Jennifer even went to the extent of fabricating an acceptance letter, further deceiving her parents and successfully deceiving her parents. And astonishingly, her parents remained unaware of the fact that Jennifer had not even graduated from high school. Now, given the immigrant success story that the Pan family was, overcoming all of these obstacles, coming out of their country and into a new one, being successful they of course had all sorts of hopes and dreams for their children. At first, Han, Jennifer's father, held aspirations for his daughter to pursue a career in medicine. However, as he developed a deeper understanding of Jennifer's true nature, he recognized that imposing this path upon her was not the most suitable choice. He acknowledged and realized that a medical career, particularly one involving working with bodies, would make her uncomfortable as she did not have the stomach for it and often it would induce panic attacks. But Han still wanted Jennifer to pursue something in the medical field, so he settled for pharmacology. After careful consideration, Jennifer agreed with her father's proposal and made the decision to inform her parents that she planned on attending Ryerson University. But unbeknownst to them, Jennifer's lack of a high school diploma remained a secret entirely. With her fabricated narrative in place, Jennifer outlined her plan to spend two years at Ryerson before then transferring to the esteemed University of Toronto to pursue that program in pharmacology. But how was she going to pull this off? She wasn't accepted into this college, not even the first two-year college. She hadn't even graduated high school. She was spinning this false narrative and this very complex lie to her parents, not necessarily connecting the dots, that she was never going to be able to deliver on it. When it came to how her college education was going to be paid for, Jennifer successfully convinced her parents that she had secured scholarships as well, in addition to grants and financial aid, to cover her entire education. With determination, she meticulously upheld this facade by purchasing textbooks, got an old laptop from a friend, took the bus to the local library every day, and began immersing herself in educational documentaries. She took notes on subjects that she thought she would be learning about in her first few years of college as well, all to create this illusion that she was actively preparing for her upcoming academic journey. And I'm sorry, but if you're already going to these extremes daily, then why not actually just go to college? Even if you didn't graduate high school, get your GED, then go to college. But to immerse yourself in academic documentaries, go to the local library, study, all of these things, it's almost like you're doing the work already, at least partial work. Why not just fully commit and actually do the work? then you wouldn't have anything to lie about. You wouldn't have any resentment or lies to keep up with with your parents. Like, it would all be good. It just doesn't really make sense to me. hey besties okay can we talk about summer wardrobe upgrades because honestly who doesn't want to level up their style game right now it's hot out it's summertime it's time to elevate i just want to forget about all of those flimsy fast fashion clothing hauls i feel like it's time to invest in high quality essentials that will just stand the test of time and that's where Quince comes in. It is now my go-to for the perfect blend of quiet luxury items and affordable prices. Quince has everything you need to refresh your wardrobe too. Think like 100% European linen under $50 or luxury mulberry silk skirts, Italian leather bags, stunning 14 karat gold jewelry, which by the way just starts at $30. Can you even believe that? Now, the best part is Quince's prices are 50 to 80% less than similar brands. It is a steal. Now, you know I worked in the fashion industry for over 15 years. And let me tell you, here is their secret sauce. Quince creates timeless classic styles that never go out of fashion. That means that you'll have these pieces in your closet forever. Now I recently got my hands on some Quince items and let me tell you I am blown away. Remember I was in the industry forever. Not a lot shocks me and is a pleasant delight for me. But I got this amazingly soft cashmere bubblegum pink pullover that would normally cost hundreds of dollars for that quality and I got it for $50. I also got this timeless black Silk skirt that I can pair with either a nice blouse for more of a professional look. Or, you know, one of my staple graphic tees that I always wear for more of a street-style look. The quality and timelessness of their styles is really impressive. Plus, they're so versatile, so you can style it in countless ways. It's like having a fashion chameleon in your wardrobe. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, Annie sounds great and all, but how does Quince do it, right? Well, they partner directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing that savings on to us as customers. It is smart and cost-effective, but that's not all. What I love the most, if not for their fashion-forward items and their quality of goods, Quint only works with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. They also use premium, eco-friendly fabrics and finishes. It is a win-win for style and sustainability. So this summer, let's all upgrade our wardrobes with Quince. Say goodbye to fast fashion and hello to timeless, high-quality pieces that won't break the bank. Trust me, you will be amazed by the prices, impressed by the quality too, and you will feel good about your sustainable fashion choices. So upgrade your closet this summer with Quince, and right now you can go to quince.com slash AE to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's Quince QUINCE.com slash AE for free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash AE. Throughout Jennifer's fake college years, Jennifer's strict parents limited her participation in typical social activities. This included parties and even casual hangouts with friends. Engaging in activities involving alcohol was also entirely out of the question. So as a result of this, Jennifer missed out on the ordinary aspects of teenage and college life that many of her peers were able to enjoy and experience. However, despite these restrictions, Jennifer sought to create her own sense of independence. So to support herself financially, she took on various roles, including teaching piano lessons and even working at a restaurant, determined to earn extra money and sustain her own livelihood. After successfully maintaining this facade of attending Ryerson University for two years, Jennifer's father finally inquired about her future plans at the University of Toronto. Jennifer confidently assured him that she had indeed been accepted and that transitioning to University of Toronto was definitely happening. She said, I've already been accepted already. I'm going. The transfer's happening. And they bought it, hook, line, and sinker so seizing the opportunity jennifer proposed the idea of moving out of her parents home and residing with her friend topaz who happened to live closer in proximity to the university of toronto she convinced her parents that the daily commute from their house to downtown would just simply be too much ultimately persuading them to agree to her decision to move out but contrary to what her parents believed jennifer was once again lying And she was not staying with her friend topaz instead during the weekdays when she was supposedly attending college she actually stayed at her friend daniel's house the one from high school and to facilitate this arrangement jennifer also deceived daniel's parents by lying and claiming that her own parents had given their approval for her to stay there daniel's parents were okay with jennifer staying there and through this intricate plan of hers Jennifer skillfully established her living situation, all while her parents continued to believe that she was living with a female friend near campus. Another two years passed, and Jennifer's parents remained under the impression that she was actively pursuing her education. They believed that she had been diligently studying for the last four years, and they eagerly anticipated her graduation from the University of Toronto. However, Jennifer and Daniel, took their deception a step further. They sought out someone online to forge a fake transcript, meticulously filling it with straight A's to maintain this illusion of her academic excellence. Jennifer further manipulated the situation by informing her parents that due to an unusually large class size at the University of Toronto, that each student was only allotted one ticket for the graduation ceremony. So to avoid hurting either one of her parents' feelings, she claimed to have given that ticket to a friend. Now, look, I'm not trying to shame Jennifer's parents here at all. Maybe they don't know how the American, well, I guess not American, it's Canadian, but maybe they're not familiar with how the school system works and how university works. But for this facade to successfully go on for four years, then for graduation to finally come and be told as the parents who have worked so hard to get their daughter to this point to be told well I gave the ticket to a friend because I didn't want to hurt either one of your feelings after them never seeing a dorm never seeing her off-campus living never seeing anything proving that she was actually enrolled in high school never going to a campus visit now not going to graduation at least for me and maybe it's because I'm a pessimist the red flags would be going up I would have expected at some point in those four years to have seen some sort of proof or indication that my child was in fact enrolled in school and not just taking their word for it then again on the opposite end of the coin if they had no reason to doubt jennifer or to think that she was being deceitful why would they question anything they would probably just believe everything she was telling them at face value and as, as And as fact, especially if they were busy, still completely consumed with their own lives, working full-time, I understand both sides of it. Jennifer disclosed to her parents that once her studies at the University of Toronto were complete, she intended to volunteer at a place called Sick Kids, and she said she was going to be volunteering in the blood testing lab. She cleverly explained that her schedule would consist of late-night shifts and also weekends, which conveniently justified her spending most of her time at this topaz character's house. However, her parents finally grew suspicious when they realized that Jennifer did not possess the sick kid's uniform or even a key card that was typically associated with volunteers at the lab. So one day, Jennifer's parents wanted to see where she worked at this hospital, and they insisted on taking her there themselves. Jennifer accompanied them in the car, but when they arrived, she quickly slipped away and hid inside in the emergency room. Her parents searched for her, growing suspicious of her strange behavior, and Jennifer stayed hidden until she could find a way to escape without being noticed. So this incident, as you can imagine, made her parents even more wary and suspicious of her actions. Something wasn't adding up here. The math was not mathin. But this still was only scratching the surface of what was to come. The next day, Jennifer's parents called Topaz and found out that Jennifer wasn't actually with her. They were worried and confronted Jennifer when she got home. Under this constant pressure and constant questioning from her parents, Jennifer admitted that she had made up the entire story about working at Sick Kids, and also that she had lied about going to the University of Toronto. She revealed that she had in fact been living with Daniel instead of Topaz the entire time, although she still maintained that she had graduated high school and that she had attended Ryerson University. Jennifer's parents, as I'm sure you can imagine, were so overcome with anger in this moment, leading them to take drastic measures. They seized her cell phone, her laptop, effectively cutting her off from the outside world entirely. They forced her to resign from her restaurant job and limited her to only teaching piano. Jennifer's parents also imposed strict surveillance on her, closely monitoring her every move, even tracking her car mileage to ensure that she remained within their predetermined boundaries. So Jennifer's once joyful existence turned into a miserable ordeal, leading her to vent her frustrations on Facebook, likening her living situation to a form of house arrest. Despite the restrictions placed upon her, Jennifer managed to find opportunities to still spend time with Daniel whenever possible. In an attempt to deceive her parents, one night she pulled the whole arrange your blankets and pillows under your bedding to make it seem like you're sleeping inside of it type of thing, when she was actually at Daniel's house the entire time. Unfortunately, her mother discovered this ruse the following morning, leading to an even tighter grip of control from her parents. Jennifer's parents issued strict demands, ordering her to sever all ties with Daniel, to reapply to colleges, and to pursue a career as a lab technician. Her father also delivered an ultimatum, presenting her with a choice, either attend school or face the prospect of being kicked out of the house. He explicitly forbid her from seeing Daniel any longer, leaving Jennifer heartbroken and devastated. He even went to the extreme of stating that if she ever wanted to see Daniel, she would have to wait until he died. That is pretty drastic, but I get it. They think he's a bad influence on her, and they're trying to get their daughter on the straight and narrow. So as time went on, Daniel was starting to get increasingly wary of the challenges posed by Jennifer's strict parents, and the constant drama that surrounded their relationship. He grew frustrated with the excuses and limitations that prevented them from spending any sort of quality time together. Ultimately, Daniel made the difficult decision to end their relationship entirely, causing immense heartbreak for Jennifer. Jennifer felt overwhelmed and completely lost as she saw everything slipping out of her grasp particularly her parents driving away the person that she deeply loved. The pain became unbearable when she learned that Daniel had already moved on and started dating somebody new named Christine. Jealousy at this point consumed her, and the jealousy was fueling her desperation even further. In a misguided attempt to regain control, Jennifer concocted a plan to deceive Daniel now. Now, He was her target of deception so she did what she does best and she fabricated a story claiming that three unknown men had violently entered her home and attacked her to escalate the situation she also alleged that a few days later she received a threatening bullet in the mail from christine intended as a warning to stay away from Daniel. I mean, this chick is unhinged. It's one thing to fib to your parents because you want to go to a school dance. It's an entire nother thing to fake transcripts, lie about going to university, lie about your living situation, deceive your parents in that way, and then it's a whole nother turn of events when you start deceiving the person who you were deceiving your parents for and telling them that you've been abducted that now his new girlfriend is sending you crap in the mail threatening your life saying back off bitch here's a bullet to show you how serious i am the delusion in jennifer's mind is unbelievable and she is unhinged in my opinion then we enter the spring of 2010 and jennifer found herself reconnecting with an old childhood friend named andrew During a moment of vulnerability, Andrew shared with Jennifer that he had once contemplated the idea of killing his father. Now, a moment of vulnerability, yes, because you've got to trust somebody to confide something like that. But also, we've talked about it before on here, when two diabolical people meet and then share diabolical shared interests with each other, it quickly spirals and becomes a recipe for disaster. So, this disclosure sparked a dangerous thought in Jennifer's mind. She started to believe that her life would vastly improve if she could remove her strict parents, who she saw as obstacles to her relationship with Daniel and obstacles to her own personal desires with her own life. The idea of killing her father began to hold an increasingly enticing appeal to Jennifer. Andrew introduced Jennifer to his friend Ricardo Duncan, And Jennifer claimed that together they devised a sinister plan for Ricardo to carry out the elimination and murder of her father in the parking lot of his workplace. Jennifer paid Ricardo $1,500 through the money that she had earned through her piano lessons, and she instructed him to proceed with the act. However, Ricardo deceitfully accepted the money but failed to follow through with the plan. Eventually, Jennifer came to the realization that she had been deceived and then abandoned any further involvement with Ricardo, calling it a loss. You can't really admit to the police that this guy stole your money because you hired a hit on your parents or on your parent. So call it a wash, call it a loss, and move on. Now later, you'll see that he maintained his innocence, asserting that he turned down the offer, and he insisted that Jennifer owed him a few hundred dollars for an unrelated matter. Ricardo emphasized that he had no connection to any arrangement involving to harm her father for financial gain. So as time went on, Jennifer and Daniel's relationship ended up rekindling to an extent. In their discussions, they also delved into a disturbing plan that had taken root in Jennifer's mind. This time, they contemplated targeting not only her father, but also her mother. Their scheme involved hiring professional hitmen who would carry out the murder of her parents. The core of their plan centered around obtaining a significant amount of money from her parents' estate, all estimated to be worth approximately half a million dollars. Jennifer and Daniel envisioned using this money to make their escape and to begin a new life together. Daniel gave Jennifer an iPhone to use as a burner phone for their private conversations relating to the matter, while she used a Samsung phone provided by her parents for other things and personal matters. Daniel introduced Jennifer to a person named Lenford Crawford, also known as Homeboy, who usually charged $20,000 for the job that they wanted him to do. However, as a favor to Daniel, he offered to discount the price to $10,000 to carry out their plan of murdering Jennifer's parents, and Jennifer agreed to this arrangement. The date they chose to execute this double murder was November 8, 2010. On that evening, Jennifer was in her bedroom watching TV, while her father Han was reading a Vietnamese newspaper. At around 8.30 p.m., Han went to bed, and Jennifer's mother Bic returned home from line dancing with a friend. Vic changed into her pajamas and went to the living room to watch TV. At 9.35 p.m., Jennifer received a call from David, and they had a brief conversation before ending the call. Around the same time, Jennifer quietly went downstairs and discreetly unlocked the front door. All right, guys, I am so excited to talk to you about today's sponsor because I literally use it every single day. Now real quick, can I just vent about how exhausting these past few days have been? Late night TV binging, I'm rewatching Revenge for like the fifth time, back-to-back Zoom meetings, all while trying to keep up with two toddlers. It's like life never slows down. But I'm going to be honest with you and tell you what keeps me going. It's liquid IV. It has been a game changer for me, not just for those high energy moments, but for everyday living. Adding one packet of liquid IV to a 16 ounce water bottle or into your Trendly Stanley cup, because I know so many of you guys have got one of those, it gives you the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water. It hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone also to all my wine drinking besties out there this is a game changer when it comes to hangovers seriously count me on that trust me on that so what's not to love you've got convenient packaging check it makes me feel amazing daily check and the flavors okay they nailed it I am obsessed with white peach and lemon lime because they are super fresh. They've got like this little zesty refreshment. I'm obsessed. It's no wonder they're America's number one powdered hydration brand. And guess what? Now they also have a sugar-free option too. Hydration multiplier sugar-free is a game changer with its zero sugar and no artificial sweeteners. So whether it's those late nights out at the bar, any marathon meetings you're in, or just for your everyday hydration needs, Liquid IV has got your back real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Now also sugar-free. Grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier that's sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code AE at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order, all when you use my promo code AE at liquidiv.com. Cheers to staying hydrated and feeling fantastic, friends. At 10.02 p.m., they used the light in the study room to signal the intruders to enter the house. Shortly after, Daniel and Jennifer communicated through a phone call accompanied by text messages containing the phrase, VIP access, indicating that the intruders had permission to enter. Alongside Lenford and David, Eric Carley, the third member of this hitman group, joined the plan. They entered the Pan family's home through the front door. Initially, they confronted Bick in the living room area, and Eric went upstairs to locate Jennifer. Han woke up to a muzzled hand pressed firmly against his forehead as he was forced out of bed and then taken downstairs. During this terrifying ordeal, one of the gunmen shoves Bick and Han down to the basement and orders them to turn around as he throws a blanket over their heads so that they can't see anything. Jennifer's parents were filled with confusion and fear, desperately pleading with the intruders not to harm their daughter. Bick's final words were, please spare Jennifer's life. The intruder provided reassurances that Jennifer would remain unharmed. However, the situation took a tragic turn as gunshots were then heard. Bick was shot at point blank and Han was shot in the face. Jennifer, in a state of panic, immediately dialed 911, urgently explaining the dire circumstances and expressing her distress. In the background of the phone call, the piercing sound of someone screaming can be heard, indicating that Han had regained consciousness and actually discovered the tragic fate of his wife, Bick. Now I'm gonna play the 911 call for you to listen to here, which was posted by Trevor Strolling. are you, ma'am?
1: I Please, just I calm down. And what Some people broke into our house? Okay, and okay. It just shows all his money. I okay, can't uh, ma'am. ma'am, ma'am. Down, okay, ma'am, have. Ma'am, where are you? What? Avenue. Avenue Road. Yes. Can you spell the, the oh, name for me, please? Dad? Good <laughs> In Helen Avenue, my dad just went outside screaming. Ma'am, can you spell the street address for me, please? H-E-L-E-N. So broken, I heard shots like pops. I don't know
0: what's happening. I'm tied upstairs. Han somehow survived and managed to make his way upstairs to the main floor of the house, crying out in distress as he realized that the love of his life was dead. A neighbor who was preparing to leave for work witnessed Han, covered in blood, and immediately called 911 for help. Both the police and an ambulance were sent to the house immediately. Bick was shot several times in the back, with a fatal shot being to the back of the neck. When the police arrived, they found Jennifer, tied up exactly as described, with her hands tied behind her back to the banister. Han was swiftly transported to the hospital where medical professionals placed him in an induced coma to try to stabilize his condition. At this moment, Jennifer was the sole person who knew the full extent of what had occurred inside that home. Later that night, Jennifer was interviewed by the York Regional Police. During that interview, she shared her account of the events, explaining that two men had entered the house, taken money from her, tied her to the banister, and then proceeded to bring her parents downstairs, where they were ultimately shot. 8MC Investigations posted part of an interrogation video here that I'm going to play for you.
3: You can't tell us to go off in a different direction. You just got to tell us the truth. And I know. Exactly, exactly. And do you have any questions with respect to what I've just told you?
2: It's just like sitting sometimes like Parts come back that I didn't remember when I spoke No
3: one to is, and that's the process. This is going to be a long process. This is an initial statement from you. We may, you know, as you remember other things, you may be asked. You may want to come in and tell us things. Okay. No one is going to tell you how to give us a give a perfect statement. You just do what the best you can, given the, given what you're dealing with. Okay.
2: Suddenly, I just heard my mom calling for my dad to come down, and that's when I lowered the volume on my TV and I could hear the voices weren't any voices I was very familiar with. And so I was scared and I couldn't move. I just sat in my room for a while. And then I thought I heard them all let like leave the top floor and I peered out of my bedroom door. And a guy was there and he came at me and had string in his hands and tied my arms back and said, I have a gun behind your back. Do what I say, if you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where is the money? Show me where your money is. A bit of money put aside from when I was waitressing cash. So I showed him where it was and he took it and put it in his pocket, I think. And then they they pushed me to my parents' room and asked me where the money was there and I didn't really know. So they kind of like, one was right beside me blocking my way to the door while the other ones turned over the bed to find some more cash in my mom's bedside table. In which then they dragged me down the stairs and made me kneel at the bottom, telling me to face down on the floor, while the other guy had a gun behind my head, and asked my mom where her purse was. My mom kept trying to get up, and they kept telling her to sit down, and so I didn't want her to get hurt, so I told her to sit down. They were trying to find her wallet, and they kept pushing her down onto the chair. And then one of the, the gentlemen asked my father if he had money in his wallet, and where his wallet was. So they took me, because I was next to the stairwell, they took me up the stairs to... Sh- Show them where my father's wallet was, but I'm. I didn't know they had turned the room upside down. I didn't know where his pants were at that time. And then they had taken me and they tied me to the top of the banister just with one string. I could still move. I was afraid to because the one guy just had that gun. Next thing I know, oh, I think I heard my parents going down the stairs and my mom was asking them for me to come with them. They wouldn't let me come with them. The last things I heard them say was, "You lied, you lied to us, you lied to us." And then I heard. Two pops. My mom screamed. I yelled out for her. <laughs> and a couple more pops. Take your time. Take your time. And I think I heard my mom say or moan or something. And then they did one more before they left. And then one of the guys said, "We have to go now. It's been too long." <laughs> And then they ran up the door, and I think once they were out the door, I heard my dad go up the stairs. And at that point, I had my phone in my in my on me behind me that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I when I when they when I thought that they had heard them all leave, and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called 911. But I, I still hadn't heard anything from my mom, and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, moaning and making sounds. And that's pretty much uh, what I have.
3: So what said. happens, continue on from from now to the point that the police arrive?
2: I was just on the phone with the secretary or the operator. And I begged her not to leave me alone, and that my dad was outside. I was yelling at him, but he wouldn't come in. I don't know if he didn't hear me. He didn't come in. I think he went to look for help. And I didn't get to see my dad at all until before I left the hospital just now.
3: How did you get free?
2: The cop came and he snipped the two, the two strings off for me. I was, I was asking them for so long and, and they said they couldn't untie me until they knew how to properly untie the strings.
0: Jennifer recounted her version of events to the police, stating that she was in an upstairs room talking on the phone when she heard unfamiliar footsteps approaching. She peeked out from the door to find a pistol pointed directly at her. She claimed that these individuals then coerced her into gathering any money that she had in the house. This included $2,500 that she had earned from her piano lessons and an additional $1,100 that was hidden in her mother's nightstand, just completely ransacking the house. Then after the incident, they escorted her back upstairs and bound her to a banister, securing her arms and hands behind her back using a shoelace one of the assailants pistol whipped hand across the back of his head. Now, the mob reporter posted the interrogation and I'm gonna show some of that footage, so please make sure you go and subscribe to them after this.
2: Well, after my father came home, he did that and then a friend of mine came over. We do TV night every every so often. So um, my dad, I guess, went up on the computer as he always does and I was downstairs with my friend watching movies and my mom was out uh, dancing. Um, my friend left around 9, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, upstairs in my room, called it a night with the TV on, um, talking on the phone with a friend of mine. And then uh, shortly after, my mom came home. I believe that was around 9.30 or so. She was rummaging downstairs. I didn't think anything of it. And then suddenly I just heard my mom calling for my dad to come down. And that's when I lowered the volume on my TV and I could hear the voices, weren't any voices I was very familiar with. And so I was scared and I couldn't move. I just sat in my room for a while. And then I thought I heard them all le- like leave the top floor and I peered out of my bedroom door and a guy was there and he came at me and had string in his hands and tied my arms back and said, I have a gun behind your back. Do what I say. If you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where is the money? Show me where your money is. I, um, I have still a, few, a bit of money put aside from when I was waitressing cash. So, I showed him where it was, and he took it and put it in his pocket, I think. And then, that's where, they they pushed me to my parents' room, and asked me where the money was there, and I didn't really know. So they, kind of like, one was right beside me, blocking my way to the door, while the other ones turned over the bed, to find some more cash in my mom's bedside table. In which then they dragged me down the stairs and made me kneel at the bottom, telling me to face down on the floor while the other guy had a gun behind my head, and asked my mom where her purse was. My mom kept trying to get up, and they kept telling her to sit down, and so I didn't want her to get hurt, so I told her mom to sit down. They were trying to find her wallet, but she, her English thinker, so she kept saying purse. They kept pushing her down onto the chair. Okay.
3: Take your time. Take your time. All this is very important, so take your time.
2: They kept all the lights off on the main floor. The only time there was light was when they opened the fridge door to see if they could find where my mom's purse was. I didn't At that point I saw three figures of men. One with a hoodie, like the one I could see the most clearly he had a hoodie on and I believe he had a bandana of some sort covering from like his lower, uh, under his eyes down. And then, for some reason, I think one of the the gentlemen asked my father if he had money in his wallet and where his wallet was. So they took me, because I was next to the stairwell, they took me up the stairs to show them where my father's wallet was. But I didn't know. They had turned the room upside down. I didn't know where his pants were at that time. And then, after they had gotten that, they had taken me and they tied me to the top of the banister. Just with one string, I could still move. But I was afraid to because the one guy just had that gun. Just Next thing I know, I think I heard my parents going down the stairs. And my mom was asking them for me to come with them. They wouldn't let me come with them. After they said the last things I heard them say was, you lied, you lied to us, you lied to us, and then I heard two pops, my mom screamed, I yelled out for her, and a couple more pops,
3: Take your time, take your time.
2: And I think I heard my mom say or moan or something and then they did one more before they left and then one of the guys said, we have to go now, it's been too long. And then they ran out the door and I think once they were out the door, I heard my dad go up the stairs and at that point I had my phone in my, in my, on me, behind me that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I, when I, when they, when I thought that they had heard them all leave and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called 911. But I I still hadn't heard anything from my mom and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, moaning, (laughs) sounds.
0: I'm going to keep it real with you guys for a minute i go to TikTok to find all of the new skincare and makeup trends I feel like the younger generation is just so on the pulse of what's happening but it honestly has left me feeling overwhelmed with so many different products trends and options out there so i always end up buying way more stuff than i need and never end up even using half of the stuff i buy it is such a waste So if you've been there too, it's my opinion that it's best to get recommendations from the experts. That's why I'm so excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatments for your unique skin. Apostrophe provides access to prescription treatments and virtual consultations. My skincare goals are to firm this face up and clean out my pores. Simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and medical history. Then snap a few selfies and a board certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. And I have a special deal for all of you listeners. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com AE when you use my code AE. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our amazing listeners, so definitely snag it. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AE and click get started. Then use my code AE at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring today's episode and for keeping my skin looking good.
2: And that's pretty much it. Uh, what I've
3: so what together. happens, continue on from from now to the point that the police arrive?
2: I was just on the phone with the secretary or the operator. I begged her not to leave me alone. And that my dad was outside. I, I was yelling to him, but he wouldn't come in. I don't know if he didn't hear me, he didn't come in. I think he went to look for help. And I didn't get to see my dad at all until before I left the hospital. Now.
3: how did you get free
2: the cop came and he snipped the two the two strings off for me I was out at them for so long and <clears throat> they said they couldn't untie me until they knew how to properly untie the string okay
3: so we've gone through we've gone through a, a very tough portion and now we're suddenly gonna go back Clinically, you know, try and rem- I want you to put yourself now as a as a figure looking down at what you see, okay? Um, so you go back you're up in your room at 930 Correct
2: nine, 930
3: you're you're on the phone. Who are you on the phone with
2: With a friend of mine an old co-worker
3: an old co-worker? Are you on the phone with that person when you hear these voices that you don't recognize? Yes, and Um, Do you remain on the phone with this person, or when does that conversation end? It
2: ended when I heard my mother asking my father to come down the stairs. And normally, they don't don't communicate very well sometimes. So what I did was I told my friend, I'll call you back. And I hung up, stuck the phone in the back pocket, and started to go up the door. And that's when I noticed that there were men running around.
3: Okay, so let's back up again. When you hear your mom come do you hear your mom in the house?
2: She was in the house. I had gone down the stairs.
3: Did you hear, so before this, this is when, when did you hear your mom for the first time in the house?
2: When she came home.
3: And what time was that?
2: 9.15.
3: Is there a time period? So, and where is your father at that time?
2: He had—he's just finishing on the computer, I think, and he was heading to bed.
3: So, did you physically see your mom? Yes. Yeah. And at that time, there was no one strange in the house.
2: No, oh, I went. She was on the downstairs sofa. She was watching TV when I last saw her.
3: Okay. Where is the? So, between that time that you see her and you leave her on the sofa. Until you hear the noises, the strange, the, the, the voices as you describe them. How long is that?
2: Maybe a half hour.
3: A half an hour? Um, where is it your mom was before here?
2: She goes dancing every Monday at St. I'd like to say St. Paul, but I'm not 100% sure. Jennifer
0: also seemed concerned about the phone usage that they would be looking at.
3: We're going to give your phone back to you, okay? And uh, your brother is just being interviewed next door.
2: Oh, you have
3: yeah, you too? Well, just because uh, you never know, right? Any other fringe stuff that comes up, it's uh, just more of an administration. But obviously, the relevant people to be interviewed, in my opinion, right now, are who your mom was with right after like when she went to this line dancing or this dancing. So we can clarify where it was and, you know.
2: Like I'm 90% sure that it's there.
3: Okay. It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that could she have drawn them here from where she was because of the type mm-hmm. of car she's driving and where she's driving to. It's, it's very possible. It's something that we obviously have to explore. Mm-hmm. So how am I going to find out who she was with tonight?
2: I don't have her number
3: at home. Um, Is there a way on my your phone?
2: Uncle,
3: can you use your phone to find that the find out who she, the people she was with tonight?
2: I could ask phone my uncles and ask them for that girl's number.
3: Okay. It's one um, of his nieces. We're gonna need. I'm gonna ask you to do that. Okay, if you can do that for us. Um, who who are you with? What phone service are you with? Rogers. With Rogers. Okay. We're going to prepare a consent for you for the phone records and then um, I'm going to uh, uh, give your phone back. I'm going to ask you to call this uncle uh, so that we can find out where where she went, who she was with and where she went tonight Mm
1: -hmm.
3: because we need to obviously find out, confirm where it was and confirm who she was where and if there was any problems, Okay. okay?
2: My question is, how far deep into this will I look for my phone? Just like comment, like regular phone calls to people, just stuff like
3: that. Really, it's just the time stamping of, of the, you know, we, we're we putting nine days down because it may come back to you that, um, oh, I spoke to him, and it may be able for us to be able to identify people that we may need to go back and interview. The, the interest of us is obviously tonight between... 9 and 10, right? Um, But we're just asking for this. We're not asking for months and months and months. It's nine days that we're asking for. And generally, it's because we may come back to you and say, okay, we want to interview um, this person. And you go, oh, I don't know where they live, but I spoke to them. Or we've got the phone records. Is the same person? And we'll have their address, at least what is registered to their phone. Okay. So it's the only reason we're asking for a 9 day period. Okay. Right? No, investigatively, it's 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 not of no real significant value other than today, okay. right?
2: It's only because sometimes I phone, you know, like teachers. And stuff like no, that. we're
3: not going to go back and interview all those people. That's not our intention, right? Um, so I need you to fill out this portion for me so owner subscriber it's the same person as this so it's you and you your address the telephone number and um, and today's date and then your signature and what it is is before we go into it it's all this is all being recorded again so it's just that you consent to giving us the records for cell phone number six four seven nine six five two one one eight um, and you consent to allow the York Regional Police to access the phone records. The said cellular phone company authorized Rogers for the following billing records, incoming and outgoing numbers dialed, registered owner information, including credit and payment history. This is really how we link phones to people, how we confirm that it's your phone, and the tower site location if requested for the above mentioned times and dates. And towers now become. Uh, I just dropped that. Towers become relevant in this case because of where you are when the phone call comes in on the on today's date. Right? Is that it? Firms your story to saying that I was in my room when I made that when the calls came in. And um, that will show up on the tower site information. That's the relevance of the tower site information. It also may turn out that maybe during this time period, you were targeted, and you were in an area. And this enables us to go back and try and look for cameras and other things through the towers. I'm not saying it's going to happen in your case, but it's why we ask for tower sites, right? Tower sites always show when you're on the phone; they show you where you're where you are when you're on the phone making calls. Um, and that the above mentioned records are to be released for the York to the York Regional Police for the purposes of an investigation of murder of your mum. and for the time period as stated, November 1st to November 9th. This is the part of the consent. I am voluntarily giving consent, and I know that I, you don't have to. You don't have to do this. This is, your, this is you volunteering to do this. You may withdraw your consent at any time. I understand that these records may be used as evidence against me and may become any part of a criminal proceeding. Now, if you're relying on this, you know, as a part of this whole process that I explained, telling us fictitious information, it comes back, now the records can also be used against you. If you're telling the truth, really 0.3 it means nothing okay Um, but we have to let you know by law that we could use these against you if you're lying to us and in consideration for Rogers uh, uh, wireless disclosing the records of the identified person above I hereby release and discharge Rogers And it's employees from any uh, liability whatsoever in regard to disclosure. So this is what the phone companies have asked us to say that because we're giving you this thing, you can't use, you can't, the people who we got it from can't come and sue us. So it's a, it's a preamble, a legal preamble. Um, and by doing this, by, okay, the owner subscriber, printing your name, you sign here, you print your name, your address. Uh, your subscriber number and the date, and I sign with the witnesses to state that I witness this. And then um, I'm going to ask you after this to try and contact that cousin to get us the name of the people who were with your mom tonight.
0: Two days after the initial interview, the police requested Jennifer to return for further questioning. They had grown suspicious and wanted to clarify a crucial detail. How was she able to call 911 so readily despite being tied up as she had claimed? And her phone was a flip phone, which would have made it even more difficult.
3: Put your hands back behind your back. exactly how you remember they were. Okay. Now, and are you restrained from movement? How far can you move your hands from the banister?
2: They tied my upper arm yes. around the banister. Yes. But my hands were bound together.
3: So your hands bound together, and this is the arm that's, the, the strings wrapped around against the banister? hmm Okay, so now how can you get to the phone? And how do you make the phone call? 911? Mm-hmm. And do you talk down like that?
2: Yes, I'm yelling at the phone like this.
3: And how can you hear?
2: I turned the volume on Max.
3: Yes. So that's exactly the way that you're talking to her against the railing. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good enough, sit down. Put your sweater back on.
0: Bick's funeral took place on November 15th, 2010 at the Ogden Chapel in Scarsboro. The police had an undercover officer present during the service because they wanted to observe Jennifer's behavior and assess whether she exhibited the expected emotions considering the traumatic incident of a home invasion and the murder of her parents that she had just experienced. The incident involved two individuals entering her home, tying her up, and shooting her parents. So to the rest of the world, Jennifer was a survivor of something unthinkable, However, it didn't go without notice that Jennifer displayed absolutely no visible signs of emotion during the funeral. She didn't shed a single tear. While people mourn in different ways, I surely understand that, this lack of emotional response raised suspicions among those around her, including the police. I mean, she had just survived a brutal attack. Her mother was killed, her father was in a coma you would think that there would be some type of emotion there, but there wasn't. Consequently, the police initiated an extensive surveillance operation on Jennifer, discreetly monitoring her activities over an extended period of time. At first, the police noticed some discrepancies in Jennifer's account of the burglary. Several factors seemed suspicious, such as finding the car keys to their Lexus left right there on the counter, Additionally, there was no evidence of stolen electronics or jewelry from the home. The discovery of hidden money in the house also raised further doubts. Furthermore, the intruders' lack of tools, such as a crowbar, to gain access seemed odd, considering their supposed intention was to break in. It appeared as though the intruders were already aware that the front door would be unlocked, suggesting that there was prior knowledge of the situation. Another perplexing aspect was that Jennifer was left completely unharmed, despite the assumed motive to murder all potential witnesses. These inconsistencies caused the police to question the authenticity of Jennifer's initial story. So detectives went back to work, and they listened to that 911 call again, and they realized something. Ma'am, I need to know your address. Avenue, Road. Can you call- Helen Avenue, my
1: dad just went outside screaming. Ma'am, can you- the street address for me,
0: please. Jennifer had said that her father had run out of the house, leaving detectives to question what parent would not check on their screaming child after a home invasion. The only one who could answer that question, though, was Han. Three days after the incident, on November 12th, Han woke up from his coma. It was a sheer miracle after being shot in the face at such close range. Despite his serious injuries, such as facial fractures, bullet fragments in his face, and a broken neck bone, he had a clear recollection of what had happened that fateful night. Hand distinctly remembered seeing Jennifer engaging in a friendly conversation with one of the intruders while they were all inside of the house. And as you can imagine, this revelation heightened the suspicions surrounding Jennifer's potential involvement in the events even more. His recollection was completely different from what Jennifer had told the police. And this obviously isn't the first time that she had been caught in a lie. After Han regained consciousness, his account of the incident contradicted Jennifer's version of events completely. According to Han, Jennifer was not tied up or restricted in any way, He revealed that she was observed moving freely around the house in the presence of the intruders. This stark contrast in their testimonies prompted the police to conduct a third interview with Jennifer, which extended over a very lengthy nine-hour period. During this intense interrogation, investigators applied pressure on Jennifer in an attempt to shift blame onto her and extract a confession. Eventually, overwhelmed by the circumstances, jennifer broke down and she confessed to lying although she did not disclose the complete truth of what had transpired jennifer retreated with her head down and admitted in her confession that she had been struggling with depression and a general sense of unhappiness feeling trapped by the strict conditions that had been imposed on her by her parents she revealed that her initial intention was to have someone put an end to her own life but that a misunderstanding occurred leading to her parents becoming the target instead, saying that she was so upset about not being able to see Daniel that she wanted to leave this world. Jennifer acknowledged her involvement in hiring someone to carry out the attack on her behalf, driven by fear and that she had already apparently failed multiple times trying to take her own life. But then Jennifer had a last-minute change of heart, apparently, which said that the gunman wanted a $10,000 cancellation fee, and when she couldn't pay it, They showed up and shot her parents, which really didn't make much sense either. So basically, instead of not giving them any money to do it, she was giving them money to stop it. Now, of course, as a result of her confession, Jennifer was immediately arrested. Detectives still didn't feel right about this story, though, so they brought in Daniel for questioning. Daniel told investigators that Jennifer did want her parents dead and that he had given her a burner phone to contact the hitmen. We're taking a very quick break in today's episode because I have some exciting news to share with you guys that I have been trying to share for months, but I am just like, I'm so excited to share it with you. I am about to drop a brand new merch line in the next few weeks, and you know, in order to do that, I've got to use Shopify for it. They're the game changer in the world of commerce platforms, revolutionizing businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle they put you in control of every sales channel from selling satin sheets on their in-person pos system to offering organic olive oil in their all-in-one e-commerce platform shopify has got you covered and let me tell you about their checkout system it is like magic my friends shopify has the internet's best converting checkout turning those casual looky-loos and browsers into actual buyers it is a game changer now back when i had my old merch up some of you may remember it i still have some of it up but nothing like this new merch that's about to land I used to buy blind, and I ended up with loads of overbought inventory. I would buy tons of size runs not knowing what I was buying. But with Shopify, it shows me exactly who is buying what, who's buying what sizes, helping me learn exactly what inventory sizes to stock up on for this new merch drop. And get this, Shopify powers a whopping 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. That is huge. And they're a global force too, powering with big names like Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn Inn, and millions of other entrepreneurs in over 170 countries. Talk about worldwide domination. And the best part, Shopify's award-winning customer service support is always there to help you succeed every step of the way. They've got your back. This is possibility, my friend, and it's all powered by Shopify. Get ready to take your business to new heights. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/serialously, and that is all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com/serialously, S-E-R-I-A-L-O-U-S-L-Y, to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com/serialously. By examining the phone records and text messages, the police successfully identified the individuals involved in the attack, even though Jennifer had attempted to get rid of her SIM card entirely. She had tried to get rid of the SIM card, but there were still text messages on the phone itself. One of the most telling texts on that phone being the VIP access that was sent minutes before this entire murder took place. There was also a text from Lenford's phone to Jennifer's burner phone on the morning of November 8th, and this message read, Game Time. As a result, all of the perpetrators were apprehended. The trial began on March 19th, 2014, and lasted almost 10 months. More than 50 witnesses testified during the trial, and Jennifer herself spent seven days on the witness stand. But which story would they believe? Jennifer's ending of life by proxy that went terribly wrong, or the daughter from hell, who wanted her tiger parents dead so that she could be with her boyfriend. The prosecution presented text message evidence demonstrating Jennifer's participation in hiring the three hitmen. In response, her defense strategy focused on claiming that she had intended to cancel the plan all along, but then was coerced into proceeding. However, this argument swiftly fell apart in court due to the extensive communication. Extensive, as in over 100 messages regarding the murder plans among Jennifer, Daniel, and the other individuals involved. And one of those text threads argued is a text that Lenford sent to Jennifer on November 3rd that said, time of completion, think about it. Jennifer later sent back Today is a no-go. Dinner plans out, so won't be home in time. Jennifer argued that the text was referring to the time she needed to pay the cancellation fee. However, the prosecution argued that it was referring to what time the murder would be carried out. Why would anyone need to be home in time to hand somebody money? It just doesn't really make sense. If she needed to give him the money, she could have given that to him any time or day or set up a different time. Additionally, Jennifer's defense attempted to depict her as a victim, a victim in all of this, a victim of prolonged abuse inflicted by her strict parents. But this argument carried very little weight given the evidence that was presented during the trial. Jennifer's defense argued that she had reached a breaking point and felt overwhelmed by her circumstances, which ultimately led to her making such extreme decisions. However, all four individuals involved in the crime, namely Jennifer, Daniel, David, and Lenford, were found guilty on December 13, 2014. They were sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole until 25 years served. Eric Carty, who was also implicated in the crime, had his trial postponed due to his lawyer's illness. In 2015, he received a plea deal sentence of 18 years in prison. However, in April of 2018, Eric passed away in his cell. Jennifer's father and her brother Felix took legal action to obtain court-ordered protection that would prevent any contact between them and Jennifer. The judge granted their request, further intensifying the emotional strain on Jennifer's father. He has been profoundly affected by the betrayal of his own daughter, experiencing severe anxiety, depression, nightmares, and has difficulty sleeping. His ability to function at work and lead a normal life has been significantly compromised. It is understandable that he would be deeply impacted by the revelation that someone he loved and trusted, his own daughter, had planned to murder him. He expressed a glimmer of hope that Jennifer would come to recognize the gravity of her actions and make efforts to become a better person through all of this. During the trial, he gave statements to the court about how the death of his wife has changed their life. He said, and I quote, When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead too. I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a better, honest person someday. Jennifer is presently incarcerated at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Following the incident, Felix, her brother, chose to separate himself from the circumstances and forge a fresh start far away from everyone. He made a move to the East Coast in order to rebuild his life, a new life. Han's ability to provide his own version of events played a vital role in uncovering the truth behind Jennifer's web of deceit. And I can't help but think, as Bic was pleading for mercy on her daughter's life, with these monsters who she was so scared were going to harm her daughter, actually had been given VIP access to kill her by her own daughter. Now, just when you think everything is done, case closed, it's not. In a bombshell new update, Jennifer, Daniel, Lenford, and David were all ordered new trials by the Ontario Appeals Court for the first-degree murder charge. This was announced on May 19th of this year. According to articles written about this new revelation, the appeals court says that the trial judge erred by only suggesting two scenarios for the attack. One of those scenarios was that the plan was to murder both parents, and the other scenario suggested by the trial judge Was that the plan was to commit a home invasion and the parents were shot in the course of the robbery in their ruling the ontario appeal court said that the judge should have given the jury second degree murder and manslaughter as other possible verdicts in bick's murder now obviously this is big news and jennifer's attorney stephanie di giuseppe called it a very important day but said that jennifer's fight is not over She said that because the jury was deprived all of the available options, the conviction is not safe. Jennifer's attempted murder appeal for the attempted murder of Han was also denied, and her attorney Stephanie last reported saying that they had not decided on a potential further appeal of the decision to uphold the attempted murder conviction. She said that it is something that the lawyers are considering, though. There is no timeline for the new trial, and as we all know, the legal system is complex and often extremely slow, so it could be quite a while. It will be interesting to see what comes of this new trial and how it could impact jennifer and the other three in terms of their prison sentences and the length of them the first trial was also so long so i'm curious to see how long the new trial will be i really hope that none of these people get off and get shorter sentences because in my opinion it is clear-cut murder and the premeditation is certainly there And I don't think that this was, like the defense is painting it, some girl who was tormented by her parents, their strict rules, and not being allowed to have a social life. I think this is more in line with an entitled, spoiled little brat who wanted to just lie her way through life, and when her parents tried to guide her as good, loving parents back onto the straight and narrow path, she rebelled and ultimately decided to murder them because they got in her way that's what it feels like to me anyway. What do you guys think about it? I will keep you updated as the new trial goes underway and what we learn from that, but I am very curious to know your thoughts on this case and if you think a new trial is warranted and what you think the true motive was. Do you believe Jennifer was a victim in all of this or do you think she is just a spoiled little brat? Let me know. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Serialously with me. Please take one quick second, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a second to rate the podcast really quick and take 15 seconds to write a quick review. It helps the algorithm, it helps support the podcast, helps push it out there so more people get notified and hear about it, and I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. And as always, as a reminder, if you're not following the podcast yet, and by following, I mean like the actual checkmark action following, make sure you take a quick second to do so that way when I drop bonus episodes that are outside of the normal Monday release schedule you will get notified of them which I just dropped one a couple of days ago because I did an interview and sit down with Jennifer Coffendaffer who is a former FBI agent and we talked all things Idaho and the Idaho case and the Brian Koberger case so take a listen to that if you haven't heard it already. But again, by making sure that you're actually checking the box and following the podcast, you won't miss out on any of those bonus episodes. All right, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with me today while we talked about another case, and I will be talking with you again very, very soon. All right, guys, have a good week. Bye.